How can we better equip ourselves to take on the new day, our goals, and the world? How do we stoke our inspiration? By dropping in, we'll hear from credible experts on ways to thrive in this environment. As persons trying to cope, as workers learning to pivot in our careers, and as those curious about life, wellness, family, healing, and humor, we'll learn by sharing stories. Like the watering hole, dropping in is a communal place. People who've had the courage to tell their stories offer the nuggets they've gathered along the way. They bring us the spark to confront what matters. Everybody everywhere is on a hero's journey of trying to survive and do well. Stories from these diverse sources pave the way, even if the paths are new or unknown. Drop in with us to discover the roots and where we go from here. And now, here's our host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's a time when holding on and holding out is more important than ever. Information is hard to come by and disinformation is everywhere. What's real? What's true? Our guest, Evelyn Latoure, tested her own medal and that of a handsome stranger she met while in Cusco, Peru, high in the Andes Mountains, while she served as a community development volunteer with the Peace Corps in the 1960s. This fight of building community and building trust in a relationship was hard fought. As an American woman from a large, close-knit family with Catholic sensibilities, Evelyn resisted the allure of her love interest until she couldn't. You can read all about it in Evelyn's new book, Between Inca Walls, a title which begins to describe the state of being between cultures and the emotional buildup of tension between two bicultural young people who tried to dissuade themselves of their passions. Welcome, Evelyn. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. You were what was called a community development volunteer in the Peace Corps. This is a Peace Corps memoir. Let's talk about community and what building community meant when you were there. What kinds of things did you do to build community? Well, we lived among the people. Uh, Peace Corps didn't uh, you know, give us much of a monetary allowance at that time. I don't think they... Do, ever did, and so we uh, lived in the community, got to know the, the community people, and because we were trained at Cornell University in, um, the Peace Corps did trainings in universities at that time, in community, rural community development, actually, um, my roommate, Marie, and I thought that we should develop some rural communities in the mountains of Peru. We were very idealistic 21-year-olds when we arrived. And um, so building community meant mostly getting to know the people and doing what uh, they thought would be good for us to do, to, to do whatever was needed. Like... Uh, because I especially think about like the sports activities. Here you are among children, kids uh, of all ages, who've never worn shoes before. So well, it's, some of them did, but but a good many of them did not have shoes, uh, and that's why we first were placed to do substitute teaching in the middle class area of the town that we lived in, Alankai, and we said, well, these kids have their own teachers that are quite 
okay. So then we said, is there some other place that's more needy? And that's when we were sent to the schools with dirt floors and um, kids that didn't have shoes. Um, And they wanted us to teach PE, and Mm -hmm. I had not been trained as a teacher, but the Peace Corps had given us some training in Puerto Rico on uh, lead-up skills and things like that. So, and, you know, we were eager young women. Uh, Marie had majored in education, so she knew more than I did about teaching. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it was a challenge because they sent, they sent us huge numbers of students to begin mm-hmm. with, and most of them spoke Quechua, which I had not studied. I had studied Spanish. So sometimes the kids had to translate for us. Sometimes I could get an adult to do that. Uh, and to tell you the truth, maintaining discipline with a bunch of you know young, eager kids uh, outside on the soccer field was, was not easy. Uh, yeah, but, especially because you discovered you actually had a volleyball that you were playing with. I mean, you were you were very resourceful, and the the story is is impressive. To be honest, um, you you are now to give you an idea of scale. I recall, I think, if I'm correct, that you made sixty uniforms, homemade uniforms, uh, on your sewing machine. Right, um, I had learned sewing growing up in. Montana, my mother taught us to sew on an old treadle machine, and I had always sewn. So in Abancay, every year in October, they have a, um, I don't know what you call it in English, desfile, where, where the various schools compete, and they do a series of exercises. And um, so this poor school that we were working in, we thought, well, they deserve to enter the contest, too. So we got them together. Uh, it was a problem because the teachers sent us different kids each time in the beginning. Finally, when we got the same group that we were training, uh, we just made up a bunch of exercises uh, to have them do. And then they needed uniforms, we found mm-hmm. out. And uh, so we, we couldn't afford out of what we earned to, you know, buy uniforms. So, yeah, I sewed them on the sewing machine of a friend. She lent me her, her uh, actually it was an electric sewing machine down there. And when the electricity was running, then I could sew. Yeah, that was, that was something. <laughs> I'm, I'm very aware of electrical outages in, um, you know, impoverished places, in remote places. So it was a one-piece sleeveless bloomer for the, for the girls, and, right. it was a pair, and it was a pair of shorts for the boys. And you sewed these things on your sewing machine. I mean, I, I have to feel that that brings you, I mean, you're, you're doing things by hand now. You're almost conjoined in a way, in a hands-on way, literally, that it, it's not often the case that you get to do things that bring you that close to a, to a group of kids that you're working with. I mean, it must have been incredibly bonding to do all of these things together. Well, we did. We, we had always cared for our students. They were some of the, uh, I don't know, most uh, caring, natural, just, you know, not spoiled at all. I mean, they, they lived in uh, homes that, you know, cooked on, with using fire and, um, you know, it, it was not an easy life for them, but it was the life they knew, and we were joining them 
in that. Mm-hmm. We also had girls clubs, and uh, we thought, well, you know, we're there to help develop the community. We will have 4-H type clubs and teach leadership to to uh, the girls. So, and that was in the roughly the same area outside of the the main middle class uh, city. Well, it was a town really, uh, but. Um, Mm-hmm. You yep. moved. You moved from the middle class um, teaching assignment because you wanted the challenge of actually feeling that you were, you know, improving lives and um, doing the work of the Peace Corps. I really was um, intrigued then about your motivations in the sense of I understand the idealism of the '60s and and JFK had just founded the Peace Corps, um, and you, but. You came from this, as you say, Montana and then California, this background um, of, uh, you say, my Catholic religion and small town upbringing dictated for me a traditional future of marriage and motherhood. Ismay, that's the location where you were, Mm -hmm. uh, where you grew up, Ismay girls planned for the horse and the man they wanted in that order. And your world was penetrated by your parents, teachers, movies, and books presented, you say, presented me alternative streams of possibility that led to a more independent future. And I wondered, you know, you were called somehow by a sense of what, would you say, adventure, um, wanting to go beyond, what what was going on? Through your through your head. Well, I do think it was the influence of some of the women that I knew there. My mother's best friend, who had come from Belgium and had survived World War II, and landed in New Orleans with fifteen dollars in her pocket, and she uh, was supposed to uh, marry someone. Actually, I think she had married him in Belgium, and kept waiting for him to send for her. And when he didn't, she just came over on her own. So. I knew of other adventurous women. I also knew of some who were not that adventurous. And I think partly because of the books I read and partly because I was kind of like free range other than, I mean, it was a small community and everybody looked after each other. Uh, But my parents were very protective of ourselves. And I believe I put in the book, I can't always remember uh, what I wrote, uh, that the, I remember okay. distinctly, though, that the other kids in the, in the town would not, were not supposed to swear in front of us. Yes, and that was in there. Somebody, mm-hmm. Yeah, which was really unusual as I look at it from my adult vantage point now, to have kids apologize for swearing because they knew that the coal kids uh, weren't to be exposed to those kinds of things. Now, it's, I was enticed to try smoking, and but that's about as far as I went outside well, of I'm pr- what my... I'm pr- yeah, I'm proud of you for that, Evelyn, honestly, <laughs> because I know correcting from dam to, you know, you had to, it's pretty parochial, It's but it gives us a great example of the strictness, um, the kind of expectation of orderliness that you were growing up with. And then you had this kind of... It's like a soundtrack going through your mind, um, and and you were receptive to the idea, as you say, you were free range, kind of like a chicken, but beyond a chicken's range. You you went off um, to Peru, kind of. That was a kind of a random selection, but then the culture it opened up something in you. How how would you describe? You know, let's hear about that. 
Well, it had started when I moved to California, which had such an ethnically diverse population. And, I mean, it's even more so now. I live in the same town where I went to high school. And it's, um, I'm definitely in the minority as, as a white Anglo-Saxon, <laughs> uh, which is great uh, because you mm-hmm. learn so much about other people. But uh, when I was in college, uh, groups started going down to... Uh, the Central Valley and working with Cesar Chavez, and at that time he was taking a census among the migrant workers, and I actually walked door to door with him. Very nice guy when I was down there. And uh, and and that kind of endeared me. I, I didn't know, that I, I was more immersed in the Mexican-American culture, uh, and I loved it because of the music and the food and especially the warmth of, of the people. So then I had the opportunity to spend a summer in Mexico between my junior and senior years of college, and that was even more impressive. And that was quite organized. I mean, talk about community development. They, the town wanted a library, and they wanted this uh, storage building in Apaseo El Grande, made into a school so the kids in the outskirts of this town could go to school. And after we set it up, the government eventually took it over. So I think, you know, I did more community That's... development, I sometimes say, in, in two months in Mexico than I did in two years in Peru because it was less organized. Mm-hmm. So what was your and... question? <laughs> oh, about the <laughs> No, I mean, it was a kind of, it was a just kind of starting point for the inspiration to do what you did. And, and also, I, I'm glad you used the word warmth because it is the one element that I felt once you got to both Mexico and then into Peru that I didn't quite feel in your family environment. Yes, they were very caring, very protective, um, very much wanted the best for you. But maybe there was a certain, you know, uh, something that w- that was tapped into by the culture that you joined that wasn't quite there in the suburban culture that wasn't allowed to say damn or, you know, worse. And I couldn't help but notice that the word Ismay, the, the name of your town, rhymes with dismay, you know, dismay. Or uh, somehow oh. I just thought it, it, <laughs> it, felt, it felt limiting. Um, you always seemed like you wanted to push out the boundaries and the borders uh, in a very, I'd say, practical and sensible way, not to go wild and crazy, but to do some good in the world. And for that, you sacrificed quite a lot of creature comforts, right? You you went to a place, a remote place. You, did you have running water? What were the kind of daily chores involved with keeping yourself alive? Well, we were very fortunate, Marie and I were, where we ended up uh, because the Department of Education, we said we needed a place to live, and they said, well, we have a storage room behind the department. And that, I again, when I reflect on it now, uh, I think other volunteers did have trouble with people intruding into their windows and their doors because it, we were such an anomaly. Um, but we were protected because we had this office in, in between us. Uh, and we did have running water outside the house, and mm-hmm. we had uh, bathrooms because the Department of Education had them downstairs, um, and mm-hmm. we had electricity for certain parts of the day. I can't remember exactly when, but I know we didn't have it, you know, 24 hours a day. But I have to say, I kind of was prepared for that because of my upbringing in Ismay. Uh, we did have electricity in Ismay. We did not have 
much of, well, we had phones, the kind that you see in the movies. I mean, it was like a western town with the false fronts, and then the phones were the kind that you ring two shorts and two longs. So, and then I had, my mother had a real work ethic. And so she thought, and all her life she thought, and and it paid off for me, actually, even though I got very lonely sometimes. But I went out to work on ranches, and the first ranch Mm -hmm. I worked on did not have electricity and no phone. And you were 11. Uh, As I recall, you were 11 years old when you did that. Right, and no, no bathroom inside. So... I had gotten used, I mean, I, I didn't expect that every place would, would have all the amenities I needed in life. And mm-hmm. um, so I, at the time, that even as a 21-year-old, I don't know that I considered it much of a hardship. It just, it was exciting. It was a challenge. And right. I, that's another thing. I always liked challenges. And I'm not sure where that came from, but I did. Probably my personality you- type. I think so. Whether it's the Scorpio or um, it's just, you know, you you accepted challenges as throwing down the gauntlet. You learned to swim. You'd never learned how to swim before. This is in order to prepare you for the Peace Corps. And that was a requirement. And you rappelled down a dam. It's There's a photograph of you doing that in the book. Um, you lived, um, you know, quite a Spartan existence. Always good to be near the government bathrooms. I commend you for that sense, common sense. Um, But I mean, you really, I think each time that it seemed, you know, well, could you endure this or could you make it across the bridge or could you make it across the bridge without looking down at the river 2,000, you know, 2,000 feet below. I mean, I, I think you took those in, as a kind of way of gaining self-mastery, of becoming more competent, developing competence in yourself. It seemed like you really formed your own, your personality and your identity by gaining those confidences at each one of those thresholds. Well, and I also think doing these things early in life, taking risks early in life, and then not, uh, and learning from them, Mm-hmm. Uh, makes you a person more, made me more confident that I could face the next one. Mm-hmm. I mean, Absolutely. there were ad- adversities, and uh, but I'm the kind of person that, uh, and again, I'm pretty sure it's the personality type because I've studied a lot in personality type, and my youngest son is the same way, that you go ahead and do it and pick up the pieces later and because you just know that you can make you know, lemonade out of lemons. Right. Yeah, there is a certain confidence there, yeah. Right. And there's a certain bravado, too, that I'm not sure is so good because sometimes you take on things that you shouldn't. <laughs> if you thought about it, you wouldn't have done it. But, you know, you, the, the, sometimes the achievement of it or getting into this, um, you couldn't have done it any other way except to hold your nose, close your eyes, and jump. One of the things <laughs> that you couldn't take risks um, with was your chastity. And lucky mm-hmm. for us, this is a book in which we get to talk about sex. I'm so excited by that because, <laughs> you know, I'm, you, really, you really take us through what it was like to be in a very, very prudent, uh, uh, a very, pure, uh, you know, a sort of puritanical frame of mind when it came to sex and relations with the other gender. And you pretty much made it your law, your governing law, internal law, that you would abide by that 
until Antonio happened. So we're going to take a commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to find out how even those walls may have crumbled a bit in between the ink between Inca walls with Evelyn Latore. Don't go away. We'll be right back on dropping in. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Evelyn Latore, author of a new memoir, Between Inca Walls, published by She Writes Press. And it is an adventure. It is an experience of mind traveling through the pages, going with Evelyn on her um, challenges, her adventures, her pushing herself over her previous boundaries and barriers. And it's just so amazing that as a seemingly small decision like going to Peru in the Peace Corps following college can change your life course. Uh, but then... Antonio was not your ordinary guy. I want to just read a little excerpt here um, from Evelyn Latore on the emotional landscape of coming to Peru. She writes, getting lost had not resulted in disaster. In fact, never before had I experienced such intense emotions, both within myself and in those around me. I cherished these newfound feelings and looked forward to more experiences with the people of this strange new land. And I, I commend you again, Evelyn, that you, you really thrived in this new environment of warmth and newness. And, um, you know, it seems as though you were good with taking on, you know, new culture, new ideas. The one thing that stuck with you was the sexual moray of chastity. Um, and, and that seemed to be a very multi-layered ethic for you. It was both cultural in terms of your upbringing. It was organizational in that, you know, the dynamics of being in the Peace Corps, you, you can't really be uh, associating, fraternizing, um, and still maintain the level of respect that you need to. And then there was your religious upbringing. Each of these aspects had something legitimate 
to contend with, something valid in their thought processes. And you defended your virtue um, very, very closely and held on to it for a very long time, more than many of us could have under the circumstances. But Antonio had qualities that you saw. He was protective of you. He had integrity. I mean, if you had it to do over, would what would you say as an older self to a younger self? Do you think it was worth all of the weight, all of the learning and discovery that you did while you were in your, quote, research phase of this uh, evolution? Well, you have to remember the times at which this happened. Sex was not as free as it is now. A women's pleasure was never emphasized. And birth control had come on the market, I guess. But I had had seven years of Catholic schooling that told me that any form of birth control was a mortal sin. And at one time, I well, actually for several years, I thought I might be a nun. So right. the idea of sex before marriage, other than that my parents drilled that into my head, it was everything around me said that you don't do that. And as a result, I was really very cold um, and unfeeling. I mean, I, I tried to deny my feelings for a long mm-hmm. time, and, and I could have. I could have. But, and, and the other thing is, I didn't know what deep love felt like. I, I just simply didn't know. Mm-hmm. And as I reflect on it now, um, Antonio cared more about my well-being than his own. Mm-hmm. And I, I never experienced that. I always, you know, fended for myself. <laughs> and and although didn't... I was concerned about him, I wanted to help him. And I he... wanted him to help himself. And, and do what, what I had been raised a man should do, which is get a job and support the family. Mm-hmm. And I have to digress. I'm writing the sequel to this book right now. And I'm so realizing happy. a whole lot of differences between our two cultures. And what? even in, yeah? I was just going to ask if finding his way was a cultural difference. Do you think? I mean, he was having, you know, he's having a hard time finding his way. He was in graduate school, correct? And and he was having a bit of a hard time latching on to a goal or a, a well, you know, yeah, future goal. He was goals. an undergraduate when I met him. He was in his third year of studying economics, and uh, that had not been his choice. Um, his stepfather, I believe, had had convinced him to study economics, and he liked math and physics. And um, so he, he wasn't a very happy person, and I think I just was convinced that, that somehow I was going to make him into somebody who enjoyed life as much as I did. Aha, and, the fixer. Um, mm-hmm. I, I didn't succeed. I mean, he is and was who he was, and I was going to make him into what I had learned would be a successful American man, you know, take charge and, and do, and he didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he, what's interesting, the thing he liked about me was that I was so forthright. Now it isn't like the culture there was very different. I mean, it's a Catholic country. 
So there are just as many rules and regulations about sex before marriage. It's just that people are much more forgiving about things <laughs> and much more mm-hmm. comfortable with their bodies. Much right. more comfortable with their bodies than I was. There's more physicality. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for one thing, he, you know, Antonio did not press himself on you. He respected your Mm -hmm. choice um, to remain celibate as you got to know one another. And um, I I think also, you know, he was trying um, very hard to sort of, you were feeling your way, both of you, um, and I credit you for, for going along with strange feelings that you had never felt before, that you, you know, as you say, you hadn't experienced deep love. And, you know, it's it's really hard to know what to do with those roiling, you know, not just hormonal, but, you know, emotions that are, you know, become an undercurrent that becomes a river um, that shaped your, your life. And um, you say at age 22, a tsunami of passion eventually swept you away. But he was very courteous. He was very respectful at the dances, the local dances as a Peruvian. You were aware this was a bicultural friendship. Um, But to his credit, I mean, he was the loveliest creature. He would dance only with you. He didn't, you know, mess around and and flirt around to, to, to make you jealous or, you know, he was attentive and devoted to you all along, right from the very beginning. Right, and he didn't brag about our relationship, which a lot of uh, guys said that they had bedded us, but they hadn't. You know, it was like it wasn't like a badge of honor for him. And he was discreet, which is extremely important. Um, you know, if you're going to be getting more and more intimate, you don't want to be t- talked about. And um, you know, even though that was also the ethos in his culture that you know you remained a virgin until marriage, not everybody um, did that, as you say. And you know guys would routinely come on to you. It's not as though you you were spoiled for choice. There were lots of guys, right? I mean, Peruvian. Oh, I was very attracted to Latin American guys, Puerto Rico, Mexico, yeah, Peru, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think it's, again, their emotionality because they'll express their emotions. I had American boyfriends. At first, when I wrote the book, I thought, well, I hadn't had a lot of experience. And then I looked back and I thought, oh, no, I had. It's just that the particular American boyfriends that I had, either I didn't notice their qualities uh, because I myself was pretty cold and standoffish and take charge kind of person. I mean, mm-hmm. I would drive to pick the guy up if he didn't have a car kind of a thing, which was really unusual in the 60s. Where I mean, I always kind of was take charge kind of person. Right. Um, but, so. I mean, I, I think I think... You know, you might have learned, or did you, how did you learn about yourself maybe a little bit more than you had, even through writing the book, in terms of looking back and seeing this river of, of warmth and feeling that hadn't been flowing before? Well, an amazing amount. I mean, I highly recommend people write memoirs because not only has it been proven to be physiologically uh, advantageous. I mean, it lowers your blood pressure and uh, it does a lot for the psyche. And for me, immediately, uh, I was in critique groups and I remember the first time I wrote about having come become pregnant before getting married or even just even having sex in a mixed group of men and women. And I, and I just 
thoroughly expect, especially the men, to be ju- to judge what I had written. And I did it with such trepidation. And no one came across as criticizing me for what I had done. And it was such a relief to have it out there and then to put it on the page. Now, I have to tell you, my husband... I had to change his name in the memoir because he um, is a very private person, and um, you know. Is that why there are no open. photos? Is that Pardon? why there are no photos of of Antonio? Exactly, kills mm-hmm. me. I I'll tell you a secret. There is one on my author page, Facebook author page, that I'll keep I'm up going. there for a little bit until he says no. But um, and I'm going there very, immediately. Yeah. He sounds uh, well, I just. just to see how handsome he was and how I, how I wouldn't, couldn't resist somebody like that. But he had other qualities, too. I, could, I totally got the attraction with him. He is, you know, they broke the mold. He's sort of a one-of-a-kind. And I thought, you know, the, the fact, I mean, just we're, we're fast-forwarding now to, you know, pregnancy, and that would imply that we did get to have a sexual encounter, and actually many of them, Um and, you know, that that was quite a threshold for you to cross. Here you are entertaining thoughts of becoming a nun. You find yourself vastly attracted to this Peruvian, not just physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and psychologically. And mm-hmm. you're wondering about the chemistry and the possibility of this kind of relationship. And did that shape your future? When I read your bio... Um, you know, it's 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 really quite interesting to me. Evelyn Cole Latore grew up in rural southeastern Montana, surrounded by sheep and cattle ranches before coming to California with her family at age 16. She holds a doctorate in multicultural education from the University of San Francisco and a master's degree in social welfare from UC Berkeley. She worked as a bilingual school psychologist and school administrator in public education until her retirement. Evelyn loves to travel, and to date, she and her husband have visited, traveled to, one, to some 100 countries. You can hear her stories and photos on her website and see her photos on her website, evelynlatore.com. Her writing appeared in Worldview Magazine, Delta Kappa Gamma Bulletin, California Writers uh, Literary Club Review, Tri-City Voices, on and on. And Evelyn is currently completing a second book, about the struggles and triumphs of a bicultural marriage in the United States. So literally, this changed your whole life. This changed your whole world. Well, in all fairness, I would say every person I know who's ever gone into the Peace Corps, it has affected their entire life. It's, it's, uh-huh. and, and especially if you go in at such a uh, sensitive age, you know, and most of us were just out of college. And uh, anyone you can talk to, the Peace Corps had a major effect on their lives. Now, for me, every job I've ever gotten, I believe I've been hired because I'm fluent in Spanish, and I'm partly fluent in Spanish because I was falling in love while I was perfecting my Spanish, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is a real motivator to learn a language. And uh, and so, yeah, it has affected, uh, yeah, when I went to get my doctorate, um, I, I was very interested in this new department that the University of San Francisco had. And, and no, I loved studying. I was a minority in the department, but uh, learned a lot. And uh, so, yeah, you, it has affected uh, 
all of my life. And that's where one of the things that I say is that, you know, a, a snap decision, uh, I say in the book how I just happened to end up in Peru, can affect the rest of your life. Yeah, it's a really cool thing that it ripples out. I mean, other concerns your family had um, were, I think, somewhat, you know, stereotypical. Um, Daddy was concerned Antonio was taking advantage of me to obtain a green card to come to the United States. Daddy never had much trust in people, and I could sense his fear that his firstborn might get hurt. So you really overcome a lot. You overcame a lot um, to to pursue this passion. There were lots of gatekeepers around you that you had to clear the hurdle of. But in some ways, it was taken care of through nature because you did, in fact, become pregnant. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. is that a son, or a, we don't know this son. from the book? Uh-huh. We have two a sons. Son. Lovely. Yeah. That's lovely. Neither of which has read my book, by the way. I wrote it for oh. them, dedicated to them. But, and I'm not judging them. They are in their 40s and 50s and very much into their work. And, I mean, they live in the United States, so, of course, they're into their work. <laughs> and uh, um, so, you know, that's just them. So, But I'm kind of leaving it for posterity. Maybe someday they'll be interested in it. And 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 the other day, my youngest son... Um, said, Mom, I realized that you, he, well, I won't go into his background, but he just suddenly appreciated the fact of what I had done and what I had become. Mm-hmm. It was like, it was, the light suddenly came on. And so when I think back to when I was 49, like he is, I wasn't thinking of how my parents had come to be where they are. So that's just life. It's a natural, right. It's a natural progression. It's something, you know, you're in your own little world, you stay in your own little world and you don't feel the need to go out of it. And then at some point, you know, you, you, you get a little curious. So Antonio also had um, antecedents, had roots in America. He had a biological father who was there. Um, And that also was a very interesting echo coming into the book. We're going to take another commercial break now and uh, give us a chance to sort of pause for a second and think about what that must have been like and how and whether Antonio actually ever connected with this American branch of his family through Evelyn. The book is Between Inca Walls, I highly recommend you read it. There's lots of sexual pleasure and there's lots of coming of age, wisdom we can use. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In with Evelyn Latore. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. 
In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. What an interesting memoir this is at so many levels. Here you are going to confession routinely as your feelings for Antonio are heating up in the, in the hills of Peru. There's, you remain chaste, but as this is going on, you feel the need to offload and to confess, you know, as is custom in Catholicism. You say to you, uh, you say, it's naturally very important, um, you know, that you legitimize what you're doing in some way. And so you, you write that you go to see the father and he says, then you're only doing what comes naturally if you have these feelings. And I thought to myself, this is, a, this is wonderful. You, you got lucky with this. He, he goes on to say, say three Hail Marys and three Our Fathers and go in peace. And this father's words were a revelation. You write, a, a load of guilt lifted from me. I couldn't believe what I heard. Father O'Brien reinforced what my sister Charlene had written in her letter months ago. Her reasoning came from her Jesuit instructors at the University of Santa Clara. It's not easy to go without having some kind of permission granted, right? Some kind of moral um, benediction to move ahead. And then you did. Well, and it's probably fortunate that it happened the way it did in the sequence it happened that I held off for so long because that way I didn't get kicked out of the Peace Corps by becoming pregnant. I was able to finish there and um, and then we had to make these major decisions and it forced our hand. Yes. And um, I mean, I didn't have to, to marry him, but I, I had really wanted to. Um, it so, very, yeah, it seemed very organic to me, not in the physicality sense, but organic in terms of a progression, a, a relationship that you tried to fight at so many levels, you know, having these big emotions, uncomfortable feelings, not used to um, having just something kind of take over your life, your psyche, your mind, while you were working with kids and trying to get Antonio out of your mind. And I think, you know, you you really um, had to do some heavy lifting to, to get to that place. You, you know, talk about the confession, and I even wondered about writing the memoir as a way of releasing um, feelings and reflections about, you know, what occurred between you and Antonio, your intimacy it had to come to a head at some, you know, in some way or another. You you were in a push pull, and I was personally very relieved that, you know, you got pregnant and you found the joy in it. You found 
it wasn't a mistake. It was actually what you wanted at your deepest core. And you had this incredibly touching ceremony where you were married in, in a very small, beautiful, rough-hewn chapel um, with very few in attendance, but it was incredibly special to you. And of course, you sewed your wedding dress. How lovely was that? Well, and I thought it was symbolic that I nicked my finger and a drop of blood got on the hem of my white dress. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, sullied. <laughs> yes, right, right. No, and I, you know, I kept journals throughout my time. Whenever I travel, I keep journals, or whenever there's a significant part of my life, I keep journals. And there was so much I had forgotten, so much detail that I had not remembered, especially the trauma of being in Lima and finding out that I was pregnant and then trying to figure out what to do. And then, and now I've kept these letters. That's why I know what's in the letters because I've got a bins full of, you know, letters. And I had not appreciated how sweet and how, you know, really beautiful and, you know, in love with me Antonio had been until I read, reread a lot of this. I mean, I know because I live with him every day for 55 years, mm-hmm. um, but as someone said, there must have been something there. And, and it was his qualities, although in the second book you'll see where there are some disadvantages and advantages, again, to, to the qualities. The same trepidation I had in Peru didn't change. He didn't mm-hmm. change that much. <laughs> Except mm-hmm. his his love stayed, and you know the, our love deepened. So, um, well, so I that, noticed that. Yeah, I noticed that after fifty years together, there's no finality in this book. You still speculate as to whether waters will be rough or smooth, and um, I commend you on this spontaneity and this kind of openness that you know a relationship continues to evolve after all this time. We touched on the on the fact that uh, Antonio did have a biological father who had moved from Peru to America. Um, he didn't prove to be a very helpful liaison. He um, made a lot of uh, demands, requirements, qualifiers that Antonio, if he was to be helped him, helping him to come to America, that he'd be fluent in English. Well, how was that going to happen? I mean, you know, things that were not exactly reasonable and led you to believe that maybe he didn't want that reestablishment of, of this um, you know, this long lost son, you're writing a sequel to this memoir. You alluded to me during the break that if we want to know how that turned out, reconnecting with a biological father, we've got to read the memoir and I will do so with, with great pleasure. I wonder. Well, I can, yeah. I can give you a teaser if, if Please. you want. Love um, it. I kept in touch with his biological father, of course, when we moved here and I thought, any father would want to know that he had grandchildren and how his son was doing. And I, because this has been my experience with fathers. This is what fathers care about their kids. Mm-hmm. And I could not believe that a father couldn't care about his son, especially somebody like Antonio. And um, his father never did remarry, uh, pretty much stayed working, uh, interestingly enough, in the same, same occupation that Antonio ended up in. And, Which was? And then eventually he passed away. His father did pass away, left him some money, not 
in a will, but because he was the next of kin and because of my letters, they were able to find my husband. Good work. And with that money, he bought a house in Cusco. (gasps) (gasps) That his mother then lived most of her days in. I had chills. That's so wonderful. It is, isn't it? I mean, yeah. It's, 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 and this is what happens when people write their memoirs. I, I'm sure everybody would find the same thing. You find these serendipitous things, these really connections that you never realized before because you never stopped that much to think about them. Did so. your family embrace Antonio, or how did? That oh yes, happen? immediately. Okay, immediately. Yeah. Well, they, like he's he's irresistible. He's quite lovable, he, I can tell you. He, actually ended up being their favorite uh, son-in-law. I have uh, two sisters that had very bad divorces. And um, no, I, and, and when we've lived close to my parents. They both passed away now. And, oh. and actually, my father kind of became the father that Antonio never had, taught him how to fix things and, and things like that. No, they had a very good relationship. And I'm that, very that glad nice to hear Yes, it's very, very satisfying. One of the um, subtexts or, you know, sort of themes of that I kept coming across in the book is the idea of very large families, very large Catholic culture families. And I wondered, you know, in your experience of, you know, you were not a midwife, but you were working in hospital, um, helping to care for women in Peru and Cusco and in the environs who had had maybe 14 children um, who were just about to hemorrhage to death and, and, and leave 14 orphans. Did, did you have a breach then with your faith over the concept of birth control? Or how do you view population control? Oh, yeah. No, I, I broke with the church long ago. Um, mm-hmm. No, I, I, I do believe that that the church's stance, especially in Latin American countries now where they still don't, you know, they don't want birth control. Uh, It it, it, it has to happen. Women have to have control over their bodies and uh, the number of children they have. Well, this is timely. This is a very timely statement. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, because the women are left with the children. I mean, a lot of times it's so easy for a father to walk away. Mm Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, I, I look at this story, um, there are several love stories. There's the love of family. There's definitely the love story of you and Antonio. And then there's this harmonizing of cultures, um, which really seems very yin and yang and complementary to me. Um, I, I wondered, did I mean, and, and you've now, your life's work professionally was working in the area of bicultural relationships. We have just a few moments left. I mean, have things changed in what I would call a positive, more accepting direction, do you feel? Well, I think people are more open today of uh, sex and uh, other cultures. Like I said, I live in a town where I'm definitely in the minority, and I love it because better food and you learn new things. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But we still... There's a, a, a place, you'll see in my second book, where it's hard to choose between our work ethic and our value in the United States of achieving and becoming uh, somebody 
and at the same time being uh, uh, caring about those that aren't do, able to do that. And I've always worked, I've been, I was director of special education, so I've always worked most of my life with uh, people that aren't uh, born with the advantages that, that I've been born with. And they have just as much right to be happy as, as those who, who work really hard. And, um, yeah, the harmonizing of cultures really comes into focus in, this, in the, the uh, sequel because um, I can... Well, we'll I, look forward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't want to say too much, but no, I realized but I, yeah. that more in, the, in, in looking back on the last you know, 55 years, so it's hard to have it both ways in a culture. I will say that my husband and I have lived in Italy for a year, and I we love the Italian culture. We learned Italian, and Evelyn? we did that because it kind of combines both. <laughs> it, it combines right. the kind of culture we like. Now, there are disadvantages, yes. too, but, you know, there are cultures I, that seem... Yes, I would say... Explore. Thank you very much for opening us up this way, Evelyn Latoure. The book Inca Between Between Inca Walls. We are unfortunately out of time, but we're going to thank our listeners and urge everyone to go out and live your lives as truthfully as possible. Stay safe, stay healthy, and listen to your heartbeat. Thank you so much, Evelyn Latoure. We'll see you next week on Dropping In. It's Evelyn Cole Latore on Instagram, Facebook. Check in with her there. Thanks so much and be well. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.